Kia ora and welcome to the Creative Matters podcast, where we have inspiring conversations with New Zealand artists. I'm your host, Mandy Yakich. These conversations are intimate, uplifting and insightful. The guests on the show have absolutely enriched my life and I'm sure their stories will have the same effect on you. Thank you so much for joining me to listen to these amazing people speak about what drives them, the way they work and their personal takes on life. Welcome to episode 56. This week I'm talking to Josh Lancaster. Josh paints the places and buildings New Zealanders know and love. I do this by trying to capture the essence of a familiar place, says Josh. Be it someone's dairy, beach, view, flat, island, road, takeaway shop, family batch, or simply just the memory of one. These are the places we cherish, the iconic moments that make up who we are. They are an agent for fond memories, stories, feelings. Collectively, we love these places for what they remind us of. They connect us. You know, you might have two people talking about, oh, that time that was it? It was must have been 86 and we did a little, and you know, Sonia had this batch here, but didn't, and Malcolm came with the blow cart. It was, and you know, and there's all this sharing, and that's right. And, oh, and that person, wonder what they're up to. In 2015, Josh made the decision to leave a highly successful career in advertising to follow his dream of being an artist. And he is now a full time painter living in the Hawke's Bay with his three sons, Lennox, Archie, and Spike. We have a great long chat about the intricacies of a creative career in advertising, how he made the challenging shift to becoming a full-time artist, the New Zealand artists who inspire him, his connection to places, buildings, text and branding, and why he doesn't like to add people to his paintings. Hello, Josh. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Lovely to see you. You too. And uh, we met a few weeks ago at your uh, tiny show opening at Turua Gallery, which was really nice. Yep. And yep, it was a great show. Yeah, it was a great show and very busy that night. And I was very lucky to meet your lovely three boys, Lennox, Archie and Spike. Yep. We just um, just arrived from Havelock North after a day in the car. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they went. They went straight to the uh, cheese and salami and started hoovering it. But <laughs> yeah, they uh, looked like they needed a good feed actually. But um, <laughs> I love those names. So they're the best names for boys. Uh, they're they're all such great characters and all very all very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same same recipe but um, different results. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're very cool. So it was lovely to meet you then. It's always nice to kind of connect before um, we record. So um, just working on Zoom now, you're in Havelock North at the moment, aren't you? Yes, I am. This is where I live and and work. I've got a um, little little house that's um, next to a little stream and surrounded by trees. And that's where I do all my painting and all my gardening 
and all my parenting. Those are like my three things. Sounds good. <laughs> um, so, you know, you've had a really interesting life and and anyone who works in advertising, um, you know, has had a pretty full-on career, I would say, which is what you've had. And now you're a full-time artist and have been for the last seven years, which is yes. amazing. So can you take us through from the beginning, Josh, and um, and tell us about your journey? Oh, sure. Um, well, beginning, beginning, um, I've always loved drawing. And I remember my mum teaching me how to draw a cow when I was about four. And um, I remember um, one evening she'd announced that She'd seen this ad in the paper for an anchor cow color cow drawing competition at Packeringa Plaza the next weekend. So each night for a week um, after dinner, we'd sit down and we'd practice drawing our cows. And then weekend came and we went out to Packeringa Plaza. And um, I remember just busting out my cow exactly. You know, I was quite match fit with the cow drawing. And I think I was the youngest kid there. And I just remember listening to these big kids around me going, oh, what does a cow look like again? And I'd already finished mine. And so I thought I'd uh, spend the extra time just adding a few more teats into the udder, which I think the client liked. Um, but yeah, they, I, um, I won the competition and got a little cow puppet for my efforts. And I think that that was the first taste of, you know, you can you can do something with this and um and it's fun and you can win stuff that's um, so good i love that story but um yeah mum's a wonderful drawer and um she's actually just started doing art classes again now has she um, i've actually noticed your, i've noticed your mum is is quite sort of prolific in in the comment section on your facebook <laughs> <laughs> Paulie, yeah. oh, I love it. Yep. And she's just so, you know, so encouraging of you as her son, even though, you know, you're an adult and everything. But she, oh, no, she is. She's so cute. Of, yeah. Thanks, mum. Thanks, mum. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, um, you know, it's funny that social media is such a, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but it's such a great tool for an artist um, to be in control of their own story and, to be able to share it with the people that matter to them. Mm, mm. Um, I often think of how hard it must have been to be an artist 50 years ago um, when you had to really rely absolutely on a gallery to tell your story. And yeah. you also had to rely on people that happened to walk past that gallery and happened to like the stuff and happened to be able to afford it. Uh, you know, whereas now, that that window into your work is open 24 hours a day and uh, it's suggested to people that might find it interesting, which, mm. is, which is great. That's right. Um, it's so different, isn't it? It's hard to imagine how artists actually ever manage to sell work now. Well, yeah. Well, a lot of them didn't back then. And mm. that's something that um, I'm always encouraged about when I, you know, read about, Vincent van Gogh selling his first work four months before he died, you know, a whole life of um, creative endeavour that that we all get to sort of marvel in and appreciate now. But 
he never got anything from it. Mm. And um, I guess in those days it was, you know, it was really only dead artists who became famous. Yeah, so, I think uh, it still is. Yeah, probably. <laughs> well, it's, largely, it's still the best way to make any money out of being an artist, I think. Dying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Although yeah. there's, you know, recently you might have um, seen there's there's been uh, a, a law adopted here which will mean that artists receive a 5% royalty mm. um, indefinitely on, on resale of their work. Which, yeah, is, which, which is, is great. Amazing. Yeah. It's something that I think has um, always been missing from the visual arts mm. anyway. It's amazing. And, you know, they obviously do that in other countries, but I just can't imagine admin-wise how that would work. Well, yeah, I'm glad that's not my problem. No, exactly. Um, anyway, let's not worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to your yeah. childhood, Josh, I mean, you had that yes. um, encouraging mum, which is amazing. And, yeah. you know, how did you kind of go through high school and, and what were you sort of thinking and what were you creating at that time? Well, through school, I think I was always very much into art. Any sort of school project um, seemed to have a disproportionate amount of time spent on the title page um, and the typeface. And um, but I, yeah, I think that, that definitely through primary school, if if it was ever a project where you team up and and you needed a picture, um, I think I was quite popular, but not so much if it was anything to do with maths or science. I'd be last guy picked for sure. Um, but yeah, loved loved drawing, loved art. Um, I went to Auckland Grammar for secondary school and my art teacher was uh, Justin Burroughs, the Auckland realist painter. And he was he was great to um, learn from. Mm. Um, I definitely probably by maybe fifteen or sixteen, I'd really felt like my destiny was art school. You know, I was just completely committed to, um, yeah, painting any anything to do with creativity. Unfortunately, at at grammar, the option lines meant you could take only one free rider subject, you know, of which there was also design and photography and PE was in there as well. But, um, you know, largely I think that grammar's philosophy was based around, you know, core traditional mm, subjects, academics. which I think I can really appreciate now. I didn't really feel like I had much time for maths growing up, but mm. certainly as an artist now, um, the um, the absoluteness of maths of things being either right or wrong, and there's only one right answer. Perhaps different ways to get there, but there's only one right answer, so there's no arguing. Whereas painting and creativity is such a colourful spectrum of grey. But you know, nothing's ever absolutely wrong, and nothing's ever absolutely right. And there's so many different right ways that you can go. So yeah. I think the more time you spend in the murky grey, the more you appreciate mm. the pursuit of absolutes. Yeah, sometimes um, feels simpler, I guess. Doesn't yeah. It? yeah. So um, for my final year at school, I, um, I moved to senior college in town just for my last year. 
and that was great because I could take um, painting and I could take design and I could take PE as mm, well. That's brilliant. No Good one idea. was questioning the option lineup. And I think yeah. that that's when that's when school and particularly then tertiary education starts getting exciting because you can build it um, around you in a relevant way, the things that you're interested in, not just the same old maths, English, science and variants of that. Mm. Um, so that was that was great. That was um, just a year at a different school and I was able to just put my head down and do what I needed to do to get into art school. That was my plan. And um, But I had a painting teacher, uh, Ken Adams, who was good enough to um, take me aside and go, Josh, I know you want to go to art school, but to be honest, I don't think anyone wants to buy paintings from a spotty 18-year-old. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, that's my plan. That's that's the dream. Gosh, that's a funny and, thing to say to a student in a way, isn't it? Well, it, it led on to, he didn't just say that and that was it. He said, have you considered going to design school? Because I just think it would just be the way you think. You'd be you'd be great at design school, and um, and also they you know you end up with a job that pays money and stuff. I think he was doing the responsible thing of yeah. encouraging me with what I had mm. to go into an mm. industry that was going to reward that. Yeah. Whereas it might have been harsh what he said, but I think it was also quite true. Mm. And you were know. you at that point? Um, sorry to interrupt your flow, but were you? at that point sort of showing signs of being that ideas guy that you need to be to be in advertising, do you think? Is that what he was seeing? I think, yeah, I think quite possibly. You know, teachers have the benefit of knowing, I guess, what character attributes lend themselves best to certain situations when the student themselves don't, they don't know, you know, they're just being them. Um, but I I think the advertising was a good fit for my creativity. Um, I didn't know advertising was going to be the destination then. Um, and anyway, I applied to design school and, and got in. In Auckland? And no, in Wellington. Okay. So um, I moved down, moved down there, and um, that in itself was just a really, not just design school, but moving out of home to go and live in a different city that I'd never been to before until the day I turned up, uh, you know, a week before my classes started. And um, I'd applied for all these halls of residency, and but I'd applied to the wrong ones. I'd applied to Vic hostels rather than Wellington Polytech hostels, which is what the, where the design school was. Yeah. So I ended up staying in this halfway house for the first sort of six weeks. Um, that it was disgusting, and and I, and not the start, not the dream start to student life that I was anticipating, but um, really motivating. And that it's like this is not where I want to be. This is not how I want to be living. Uh, so very soon after that, I went. I went flatting with some people that I'd met and and that was just such a great independent 
adventure. Mm. Um, and I think the time that you start sort of discovering who you really are and what you really want to do, and when there's no one there, uh, parental saying you should be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that, you've really got to listen to yourself and what you want to be doing and where you want to be going. And I think that that's when things perhaps started happening for me. Yeah. So design school was great. It was four years down in Wellington, and um, and it really did give me everything that I was I was after. You know, the papers that I was taking each day were everything from drawing to life drawing to computer graphics and animation and typography. Um, it, it it was it was great. It sort of fulfilled all the things that I wanted, and there's plenty of art history and design history papers and and I was just a sponge for it all and and loved it uh, and then I ta- started taking advertising papers and I think I'd always been um, allured by advertising I remember my the walls of my room growing up were um, pasted with it ads that are big glossy ads that I just loved loved the thing that they were selling or the way they were selling it or the you know mm. whatever the branding and, yeah and I was just a sucker for it and so yeah I think where there'd probably been um my mates might have had loaded or FHM calendars mine were all just you know, ads for shoes or really? um, album covers or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I used to sort of, I remember at high school, you know, trying to make my own magazines. And um, yeah, I, there was there was definitely um, an intent and a drive towards there, but I just didn't know that, I didn't know what it was at the time, but mm. I was probably going through the early stages of, of, um, of, of advertising art direction, mm. I suppose. And working out what you loved. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Um, and so probably halfway through design school, uh, there was a moment where I met my creative partner, Jamie Hitchcock, and Jamie had already done a degree and he'd um, gone travelling and had an epiphany uh, in the Middle East that he that he needed to get into advertising. So he came back to New Zealand, got into advertising, and we sort of found ourselves in the, the same advertising class. And I remember seeing him present something to the class, and I just thought he had, he just knew how to talk and knew how to sell what he was, <laughs> what he'd done. And, yeah. and I loved it. And, um, and so we started working together and advertising. Uh, the creative side of advertising relies on the creative team. So you have a an art director and a copywriter. Traditionally, one person's responsible for the words, the other person's responsible for drawing a scamp and the photography and the type. So, mm. But really, the strength of the creative team is in having someone that you can you can bounce ideas off, someone that understands you. You know that you have a um, uh, chemistry, a creative chemistry that works together, and in that case, the you know the sum of all parts is much greater yeah. um, than just two two people who like doing ads. Mm. So, Jamie and I were working together 
in at design school and then ended up getting a job for a um a big agency in Wellington called Cleminger and that was um I th- I th- the other the th- one of the things that I loved about working with Jamie is that we both we were both motivated to get jobs you know we weren't just down at design school to have a good time um yeah. we really wanted a life beyond that it was a means to an end and um and so we we started setting goals together quite early on in advertising we wanted to have a job as soon as we'd finished um and you know we we sort of pushed ourselves both in our individual pursuits at design school um and yeah got this got this job and the goal setting sort of continued and I know it sounds a little bit nerdy but we sat down and um everything used to happen over coffee and cigarettes in a cafe mm-hmm. in the morning that's pretty much how how it worked yeah very very wellington yeah and <laughs> um and i remember we we got out a pad and we wrote wrote down our our goals as a team and they were to i remember them one was to um get our first tv campaign away that year we also wanted to be the most awarded team at work and we wanted to make ourselves um so indispensable to the agency that we weren't going to get fired when the agency lost a client yeah isn't it amazing um, at that that young age how old were you then well i was probably 21 22 amazing jamie's a bit older than me jamie's eight years older so he brought a whole lot of maturity to the equation that mm. I wasn't necessarily um, <laughs> offering. <laughs> That's up. quite good, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. It is great. I think in a creative team to have people that you know you can connect and understand each other, mm. but you also have different life experiences, so you've got a larger pool collectively to be drawing upon as yeah. a resource for your and then you. And you still had that sort of young, gorgeous naivety that you brought to the team, which is also good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kept Jamie in touch with what the kids were up to. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so we, we set those goals, and it's a funny thing with goals, but when you commit them to paper, they're actually, that's the hardest bit. Um, mm. Once you've actually decided what your goal is, then the rest of it's quite clear and straightforward um so we went about that and and picked off all our goals and i'm like right what's next and that that seemed to work really well and you were working within a a company at that time yeah so agencies hire creative teams usually so you get hired as a team and you get fired as a team usually um and yeah we both advertising had always just sort of um yeah there was a real allure to it that it was it always seemed to be um full of cool people doing cool things and and uh the walls of the agency were always surrounded you know it was filled with great pieces of art and um 
yeah, there was always a real vibe when you when you walked into Saatchi's or or into Clemenger. Um, and it was a place that we wanted to we wanted to be. It was just really exciting. Mm. But um it was also a different time and our day usually involved turning up at work um at about eight or eight thirty and really getting getting stuck in all morning. And then you'd find yourself out at lunch, someone would take you out to lunch. Um often film companies would take creative teams out to lunch as a way of getting to know them. And um and we we were very happy to go along with, with that. And so you'd have these wonderful lunches at places that we certainly couldn't afford to go to if we were paying for for it. Um and then you weren't really expected to be back in the agency if you'd been drinking. It was sort of like a rule, right? If you you're not fit to come back to work, just don't come. We'll just see you tomorrow. And so you'd have a great afternoon with really clever people telling cool stories, often um inadvertently you'd be solving creative problems along the way. Just mm. um through the through the course of conversation and, and talking to people. Um and then you'd sort of go home and and hang out with your flatmates or your family and come to work and do it all again the next morning. But there was very clear light and shade as to when you're working and when you weren't. Yeah. Um and we never we didn't have um the old Nokia phones that we had back then could text. And that was that was great. That was there was only there's only so much you can get someone to do mm. in a brief if you're texting them. Yeah. Whereas it's quite, it's quite a different world, isn't it? Before, you know, all the emails and yeah, yeah. And, and so, and, it, and it's a wonderful wonderful tool. But the mm. technology is a wonderful tool. But um, advertising, I think, for us perhaps worked better when there was that light and shade and. Yeah, you left the agency, and and that was it for the yeah. day. Mm. Um, and you also you felt like you were paid a lot of money, you were looked after, you were given space to work, and that you didn't want to take advantage of that. So you always made sure that you you came up with the goods. So, you know, there was still a lot of expectation. Mm. Um, and yeah, it 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 has changed. I think that. Once laptops started coming home, and then once phones started being able to not just be able to brief you, but you could also actually do the work and send it back from yeah. your mobile, it was a lot harder to escape escape the work. Um, and yeah, that's probably something that I I struggled with personally. Um, you know, towards the end of my advertising years is that mm. there just wasn't an escape from it. And I think creative people do need, um, I think they have a lot to give, but you just can't expect them to be on red line mm. the whole time. You need to turn the yeah. car off. Um, Did you feel like that sort of affected the way your brain worked and your sort of creative ideas when you were just going all the time without that headspace? I don't think it affected my creativity 
I think, um, you know, it's funny, you, you sort of learn to use this tool that you're born with and what it can do and what you can get out of it and how to get it to do the things that you want when it's not in the mood. You know, it's it's a tricky thing, mm. um, but but you learn you learn to get the, the best out of it. What I found, and and it's 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 a really weird thing. It's a, it's a really weird weird personal thing. But um, I think that what ended up happening is that um, what I needed to do to get the work done often, if there wasn't enough time or there wasn't enough motivation, is I'd find myself. Um, the sort of the psyching up that you need to do to, right, we've just got to smash this, we've just got to get through it. Okay, this is what's going to get done in the next hour. This is what we've got to do today. I think although um, consciously, I think I was able to to handle it, I think that it had weird health implications for me and that your body doesn't like being put, thrown into this sort of flight or fight scenario just to get work done it's really effective way to get shit done Mm. but um i think what ended up happening with me is um the products that i was working on after a certain amount of time um started i'd think about them and often they were food products and i'd literally get sweaty just the thought of that that product or that ingredient. And and I think it was probably my body saying, This is poisonous, this is toxic. Wow. Um and I and I just thought, oh, I must be allergic to an ingredient in this product. And then finding this weird situation where it's like, how can I be allergic to every single product that we sell? That's really know, like, fascinating. Is, this, is there an additive in here? Um, and particularly, uh, yeah, anything to do with um, oranges or lemons, I'd struggle with. And I'd be trying to draw these scamps, you know, on an A3 piece of paper. And um, I ended up having to get sweatbands so that I could... And I used to get pissed off because it'd be like really? sweat dropping on the page and it's wrinkling the paper and it's like, oh. Oh but it gosh. happened It happened so slowly that it was like no, normal. Mm, and that's was, really interesting. Do you think um, it was a, it was like a trigger? Something was triggering, triggering you sort of psychologically? I think, it's, I think that in all the... Um, you know, all the connections and the wiring and the associations, I think, that you build and develop, um, which makes people good at what they do. Certainly, advertising creatives good at what they do. It can, I think, that you can also build negative associations and so forth. And I think that that's what was, was happening. At mm-hmm. the, in the background, um, you know, I, I, I was probably thinking that it was, Work, work related or product related or whatever but I think at the same time I was a um, a young dad with three young children um, and I was also chasing 
this or pursuing more seriously this hobby that had turned into potentially my next career, mm. uh, a, a dream of being an artist, um, not just selling chips and beer and chocky bickies. Um, and yeah, I think that there was, it was all the pressures of that. And that was sort of probably um, perhaps, perhaps the real reason why this was happening at work was that I'd found what I really wanted to be doing in, in life. And it was just there. It was just, just over there. But I think the hardest bit was the overlap between being an advertising creative and with the expectations on you, um, and and also the role as a as a husband and a father, and that um, you know I wanted to go and. Uh, be a painter I wanted to be an artist but it didn't feel like it was a responsible thing for the key breadwinner at home to be doing you know mm. and um and that sort of it's funny but that sort of changed a bit now and that I think the worst thing you could do as a dad is just to keep doing the job that's not making you happy anymore mm. when everyone knows what your dream is um, and I think there's certainly a um, sense of pride in paying the bills and feeding the family while doing the thing that you've always dreamt of doing. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's very, so, I mean, it must be hard. I suppose it adds extra pressure in some ways when you're you're actually doing so well in your career and you're earning a lot of money. And so it almost seems like more of a sort of jump down to doing something that initially might not be earning much money at all. May Maybe not earning any money and maybe won't go anywhere. You know, that leap of going from a sort of such a, a great career. And, you know, let's face it, you were very well thought of in that industry and you actually won the New Zealand Young Creative of the Year in 2005. So, you yeah. know, you're probably being very modest. You you had a very successful career. And so going from that kind of, um, you know, that kind of, of job where you were sort of seen as somebody who was a happening guy and, yeah. you know, knew what you were doing and everyone respected you and admired you and and then suddenly sort of taking that leap to doing something that might not be successful yeah we we advertising was a lot of a lot of fun and um and jamie and i i think were quite good at what we did we had a um i guess over the years developed a sort of niche as the creative team that you'd go to if you were selling new zealand or something new zealand we um seem to be able to peddle a tone that could connect with New Zealanders. Mm. Um, and I guess that's what we we sort of became known for. And did you um, actually end up with your own company or were you still working as a team with another agencies? No, we um, we were always with other agencies, big agencies, but I guess we always had a dream of doing our own thing. And so in about, I think, 2007, we left uh, Colenso in Auckland, where we'd had a, um, a great few years and won lots of awards, which are really important to 
advertising agencies. Mm. Um, Which must, must add to the pressure. Yeah, well, they're great to win. And then you've got to back it up the next year and the next year. Otherwise, it's just a one-off. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you do make a little bit of a rod for your own back, so to speak. Um, but And so advertising was all about the awards for us early on. And we we were told as junior creatives that we just needed to be selfish about that, that that's what that's what agencies wanted from us, just to win a whole lot of awards. And that was our job, and we set about doing it. But more and more, we ended up also becoming a safe pair of hands for the larger clients or the trickier clients or maybe the less glamorous clients. And we took real pride on using our creativity to solve their business problems rather than just um, using our creativity to solve our lack of awards problems. Mm. Um, and um, then went off and set up her own agency. And it was called Josh and Jamie. And we had this dirty little concrete bunker in Greyland with no windows um, that was underneath a block of flats that whenever anyone flushed the toilet, we just, we, we heard it all and we could hear it moving along the pipes above us and, <laughs> When we first moved moved into space, it was like, oh, look at these industrial cool pipes. <laughs> we just didn't know that there was just the half of Greyland sewerage overhead. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, but we, we loved doing our own thing. And again, that was, um, you know, that's where the goals sort of came about. And it's like, right, this is what we've got to do. And, and this is how many clients we've got to pick up in the next few months. And this is, and, and the, this is what it's going to be about. And we had a furious start and um, picked up some great clients. And, and our, first, um, our first shoot is the new agency. Josh and Jamie was around the world trip that we'd unsuccessfully tried to write for years. And then we found ourselves um, shooting in the States and India and Dubai um, and yeah, it was it was amazing. Um, wow. Sounds amazing. And but then um, it wasn't the plan. But after about six months, we uh, were approached by another agency who just really wanted us to come and work with them. Mm. And um, so they bought Josh and Jamie, and and we joined this. Um, joined in this, an agency called Assignment that we'd always admired. Um, and what we admired about them was that they, ne they never entered awards, they never spoke to the press, um, and they didn't pitch for business, all of which were quite big, interesting things. It's like, how yeah. can you survive as an agency without mm. pitching and without the awards? And how will anyone sort of know if you're any good if you can't tell them how many awards you've won? But we we loved the guys that ran assignment. We'd always admired them and loved the work that they did and um, and the way that they rolled. And so we joined joined them and stopped talking to the media and stopped entering awards. Two things that we thought we were quite good at. Mm. And um, and but it really just uh, 
use our creativity to directly solve clients' problems, the things mm. keeping them up at night. And yeah. so it was, that was there was a real sense of um, satisfaction and, and feeling like we were actually using our forces for good. Mm. And did not. that did that take some pressure off? Do you think? I mean, was that slightly less stressful? Yeah, it, it was, and that you weren't serving two masters. You know, you weren't uh, promising the client you were going to, you know, sell more dog food or whatever, mm. and promising the creative director that you were going to win a gold lion. Like, yeah, you know, it's really hard to do both. Um, some ads can, but most ads are either down and dirty doing a job or real wacky and creative winning awards. You very yeah. few. Sit in that little bit in the middle. Mm. Um, so that was, yeah, that was really that was really different for us. Um, but yeah, I, I think the hard bit about leaving advertising was it wasn't wouldn't have just been leaving advertising, but it would have also been leaving my creative partner, who I'd been working with for the best part of twenty years. So I think that the Probably the hardest thing for me about leaving advertising, it would have been a whole lot easier just breaking up with advertising. Um, but, you know, I had a relationship with, with Jamie that had, you know, 20 years in the making. Yeah, that's and, such a long um, time, isn't it? And it's probably a long time in, in advertising circles. Yeah, it it is, I think. Um, and that was all we'd ever known was just working with each other. Lots of sort of creatives, you know, um, have have different partners and try different people and but we always just had each other. So um it was it was hard and that I didn't want to ever leave him in the lurch as well, but essentially that's what had to happen for me to mm. go and pursue my own thing. Mm. And what um, was the what was the catalyst with that? I mean, was it partly the stress that you were experiencing? Uh, did you kind of acknowledge that at that time, or was it just that sort of yearning to be painting? Well, I think I'd probably been painting for about five years at this point, painting seriously. And I remember, I remember when I started painting, and uh, it was. You know, after a day of um, talking, talking, talking at work, what I loved doing was, um, you know, after the house is all tidy at night, turning on the PlayStation and just escaping into a game. Mm. And I th- and I think I'd always done that. I remember buying a PlayStation when I was at uh, design school, and that was sort of like my go-to way to get out of my headspace of solving problems or whatever um so i i used to play playstation that was that was my escape and then i had this realization one night that um you know you finish a game and there's nothing to show for it you know it's the hundred hours that you can't really reconcile um and there was sort of something uncomfortable in me in that I had this dream of being an artist and, but I was also telling myself that that's what I'd do when I retired or that's what I'd do when I got kicked out of advertising or Mm. I just don't have the time at the moment, but I did have the time. I just 
wasn't using it. I was using it on something else. So I stopped playing PlayStation and started painting pictures in my back shed. And I found it a whole lot more rewarding because I was getting the same result, you know, and that I'm thinking about something that's completely unrelated to my daytime mm. problems. Yeah. But at the end of it, I had something to show for myself. Mm. And also some there seemed to be an appetite for people who wanted to take that thing off my hands and give me money for it. Yeah. Which was like, oh, I wasn't getting paid playing PlayStation. Yeah, exactly. So that was that was cool. And at first I just started doing it for myself. Um, but I set up a page on this new app called Facebook. <laughs> and I just I just post a picture of what I'd done. Mm. And, and that and you were still working in your advertising at that time. Yeah. 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 And so it was sort of the thing at night um, that I did to uh, for balance, I guess. Um, but as it sort of took on a life of its own and snowballed um, and the commission list grew and I was getting um, approached by various dealers that were after uh, – after pieces for an exhibition and there was tension and I just didn't have the time in my day to be doing it. I only had hobby time of like maybe half an hour, an hour a night. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was that, that overlap was, was hard. It was, it was hard on me. It was hard on my wife. Um, it was a really difficult time and, um, and it's, it's great being able to, be on the other side of it and be able to paint all day as my job and not have any other commercial distractions. Yeah. It's just um it's it's just the trauma that happens in between trying to go from there to here. And mm. um I didn't think I I don't think that I would have had the confidence um or perhaps the stupidity to just throw in my job one day and go, actually, I want to be an artist and I'm going to start today. I don't want to do my other job. And I, I don't think that that would have worked. Um, but, yeah, you you can't sort of change the way that you've, you've done things. Mm, but, yeah. Um, so was there some sort of fallout from you sort of being so busy Um in your daytime career, and then and then really focused on your art at nighttime. Was that was that a strain for you and your wife and your and your kids? Yeah, I think so. I I don't think so much um, for the kids, and that uh, the advertising day would. Um, Jamie and I would always try and be back home by like three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, and you'd have some great time with the kids. Um, good family time then, but it just became expected as routine that the workday then kicks off again about eight o'clock or nine o'clock. Um, and then painting would sort of be the last thing that I'd do. But yeah, often it was sort of the maybe 11 o'clock to one o'clock time. And, and I'm creatively, that's 
at night is when I've always been at my best, whether that's mm. coming up with ideas for things or whether I'm painting. And, you know, that just has a, um, I guess that just the pursuit of that um, does, there are there's sort of sacrifices and there's, particularly I think as an artist, the, um, if you are, when I'm in artist mode, which is very different to when I'm parental. When I'm parental, it's all about routine and this needs to happen at this point and, you know, drop-offs here, lunches, laundry, everything needs to be done in a particular order and there's not, there's not a lot of movement. Mm. Whereas when I'm in painting mode, it's um, I feel like I'm a lot more true to myself in that if I'm hungry, I stop and eat. If I want to go for a walk, I go for a walk. And if I want to paint, I paint. And yeah. you're, you you don't have to do anything that you don't want to do. And I also think that it's been a really great exercise and uh, probably for the first time um, in my life that you're able to listen to what your body's telling you, you know, and you can hear it really clearly when it's up to you as to what, what we're doing next. Um, you know, you know, if you're hungry, you know, if you're tired, you know, if you're mm -hmm. grumpy, you know, if you just need sleep, you know, if you need food and you know, really clearly if you need to paint. Yeah. And I think the tension point for me as an artist is um, in relating to other, to other people. And to, you know, to friends, to partners, um, that often their routine is the flip side of mine. You know, where I work at night and during the day, it's like, that's the time to go for walks or go to the beach or do some gardening. Who's up for that, guys? Silence. We've all got proper jobs. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, um, and and likewise, the um, you know that when you've got um, when you are feeling the need to paint, it's torturous when you've committed to something, or you know you're out at dinner and and lovely company, lovely food, but there's this little fire inside you going. You've got to be you, mm. you're you're in the zone. You've got to be in the studio painting. Yeah. And the other side of that is you can try and create time to paint and block out time to paint. And you might have the time, but you just might not be feeling it. Um, yeah. So there's all sorts of little tricks that you have to play. You need to, sometimes it's the pep talk and I come on, look, we've just got to get this done. You've got to do this. This is what you're going to achieve today. And the other times being gentle on yourself and going, right, you've got to do something got to do something else right now yeah just go and get some input rather than some output yeah I mean obviously we need to talk about exactly what your practice is all about but you know it's just so interesting hearing what you have to say Josh I'm sure there'll be so many artists out there who are just you know really benefiting from your sort of reflections and your experiences yeah it is kind of leaping forward but 
you know, how do you find that sort of contrast between you often working alone and motivating yourself and disciplining yourself and then compared to your career in advertising, which would have been so much a part of a team and, you know, you're especially with you and Jamie kind of driving forward together, it must be quite a sort of different environment for you. It is, it is. And I, I like my own company, so it's not, you know, it's not as torturous as it would be for, for some people. Um, I find I'm really effective in a solo mode. I can just get stuff done. But very different to advertising in that one of the things that I miss the most about advertising is the people and being able to turn up somewhere in the morning each day and all your friends there, it's like it's like cheers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and you turn up and... And everyone's got a cool new story or a place that they've been or a movie that they've watched, or you've got to check out this app, or it's a real fast track to mm. a curated smorgasbord of of all the cool, interesting, exciting yeah. things happening in life. Especially yeah. as, as someone as you know, a dad of young kids that's also spending a lot of time in the studio by himself, you know this is sort of great stimulus mm. and so i'd love love turning up in the morning and we'd all make a coffee together and have a chat before we independently get into our work days and that's the bit that i do really miss certainly in my line of work now it's just me and so i i have to be the um all those roles in an agency and in, in one and that's yeah. you're not just not just the painter or the artist but um i've also got to find part of me that can do the admin and yeah. not just paint the pictures but also write about the pictures or you know and then hustle my own work and yeah and, you know and and be active on social mm. media you know there's all these other roles oh, yeah beyond just being the guy painting the pictures the painter um, yeah, yeah and making making all the creative connections and that kind of thing with other people and yeah know, with which, galleries. Which, are all, which are all great yeah. um but they all they all do take away from the core task of mm. painting a picture yeah um, and, and that i think all artists struggle with that don't they i mean it's yeah. it's just there's so much more work to being an artist than just actually doing the craft yeah yeah, totally, mm, totally. Which can be so hard. So, I mean, gosh, it's already been an hour, I think, that we've been talking <laughs> and we haven't started talking about your painting, but it's such an interesting story and it's still, you know, you've had such a creative career that I think it's all all the things that you've talked about so far are sort of really, you know, interesting for the audience because, yeah. you know, it's still it's still that kind of creative buzz that you were on that you kind of then shifted to another yeah. gear, I guess, and creativity. Yeah. And I feel very lucky to have had that time in advertising because it certainly helped me in terms of being able to um, sell my own work. Mm, yeah. You know, I think that we, it's a tricky one for New Zealanders um, selling themselves because we don't like. At when somebody tells us 
hey, look at this cool thing that I've just done, or mm. uh, you know, aren't I clever? We don't like that. We don't like that at all. <laughs> no, it's funny, isn't it? We're and, quite uncomfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. And Strangely. so it is hard when um, my career and my revenue um, is directly linked to being able to sell, sell that piece of work or talk up that piece of work or get that piece of work in front of the right people. But also the, it's me that has to talk about it um so it's a weird one where yeah sometimes you can talk in third person but that's that's a little bit odd um so i think i think i've figured out a way to do it that doesn't sort of perhaps um rub people up the wrong way yeah um, you definitely have and and those skills i mean have really sort of put you in a good position i guess for your for your careers as an artist you know you can probably talk the talk and and come across in a sort of genuine, authentic way, which is a good thing. Oh, that's good. Thank you. So um, let's just jump into your actual painting and your art practice. Yeah. So um, I'm sure everybody listening has seen your amazing work, but can you give us a little description of your paintings and the kind of things that you like to paint? And then we can start talking about your process. Sure. So I paint, and I've always painted, large landscapes in acrylic. I like big canvases because they feel like windows. And I like it when you can stand in front of painting and feel like you're looking at a view rather than looking at a picture of a view. So scale is quite important. Um, the landscapes never have people in them. When the scene's absent of people, I think it is accessible to even more people. You know, it's a it's a blank stage for them to populate with their own memories, and that's not at the expense of somebody right next to them doing the same thing. Whereas, if a landscape has a little girl running through it, that's about her story and her relationship with that place, not about yeah. mine. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. So, and and that's what I get really excited about um, with sharing a painting, is I'm not after somebody standing in front of the painting and complimenting the detail or the use of colour or anything like that. It's when the conversation, a conversation is sparked um, where memories are shared with another person and you know you might have two people talking about oh that time that was it it was must have been 86 and we did a little and you know Sonia had this batch here but didn't and Malcolm came with the blow cart it was the blow, <laughs> and you know and there's all this sharing and that's right and oh and that person wonder what they're up to and I think if the piece can stimulate those stories and anecdotes and 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 memories and connections with other people that for me is like what i feel really good about mm. piece of work yeah um and i think that that's ultimately what i'm what i'm after is um half my work is commission based and it gives me a real sense of uh satisfaction 
being able to hand the piece over to someone that is a that clearly tells their story and mm-hmm. their story that's important to their family and their kids and future generations. Yeah, um, that's amazing. And yeah, that's quite so, incredible, isn't it, to have half your half your practice devoted to to commissions. It's probably a little bit more than that. There's yeah, there's always been a big to-do list of commissions. Wow, which is a good position to be in, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Mm. It is, but also as a pleaser, I'm uncomfortable with telling people that it's going to be 18 months before they've got a painting. Mm. Um, you just got to let that go probably. Yeah, know. but that, that That's is what it is. That is what it is. And, um, and I think unlike advertising, Deadlines were deadlines, and um, as an artist, I don't. I I often hear, um, you know, are you sure that's enough time? We just want it. To, we just want you to be happy with it before you let it go. So mm. no one ever said that to me in advertising. Yeah, yeah, it's quite different. Um, yeah, and and they also they don't haggle about the money. You know, I don't think anyone tries to negotiate like they would on the cost of a television commercial or the um you know or the monthly retainer and yeah that's so but, true so i do feel <laughs> i do feel in a in a way uh that uh, weirdly some the, there's more respect offered to the artist than the hard-working creative director you know mm. Um, even really though it's, it's, it's still the same brain, same person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting, you know, idea though, isn't it? It's I mean, it's great that artists are being respected in that way. Yeah, yeah. And I think um but I also think that people have a perception of what life as an artist is like. And I think that they think that there's a lot of maybe a lot of swanning around and being influenced and stimulated by things and yeah going for walks in the rain or just whatever <laughs> but it's 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 not it's a lot of it's yeah. a lot of hard work and yeah. it's a lot of um you know when stuff doesn't work out that's a week gone that's right you know, yeah and you're not and getting back yeah and you're not really getting paid for your time as such no no and yeah that's there's lots of things that you don't get paid for as an artist, mm. but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that's a that's a bad thing. Some things mm. you just get paid for in exposure or perhaps yeah. positive PR rather than money. Yeah, you can um, look at the big picture, I guess, sometimes. But, you know, it can be hard and you can't necessarily put your price up for the end product um to cover that so you know there's sometimes no. a bit of a um yeah it sometimes but, doesn't quite work out no but there's also this you know even when i sell a print um and the prints are great and that it just makes each of the originals just work a little bit a little bit harder mm. i still never do more than 20 prints of any one yeah. thing i like the idea that it's still a limited edition yeah yeah but those prints when someone hangs a print in their house it's a great ad for 
Josh Lancaster Paintings Limited. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah it's wonderful media, and um, and so every every piece that you do is out there working quietly for you in people's homes. Yeah, um, that's a good way of looking at it. And prints are so beautiful these days with all the amazing inks and and photography and scanning and you know it's yeah you know it's can be enjoyed like an original visually. Oh, we're so so lucky as artists to have all those tools at our fingertips. Mm. Um, the phone and our camera is, you know, just the bit for a landscape painter to be able to just stop at any point in my day and go, now that that would make a great painting. Yeah. Or I love the way the light's sitting there. Or yeah. Oh, I'd never seen, you know, never realized how much I loved this thing before or this view before. And so, and my process involves working in the comfort of my studio with Radio New Zealand blaring. Um, I'm totally, totally comfortable, 22 degrees. I'm not standing in a field um, catching bits of paper as they blow away in the wind. I can't think of how difficult that would have been to be an artist then. Whereas mm-hmm. to be able to just zoom in, on any reference shot and go, oh, that's how that works. Or yeah, we we're super lucky. Yeah, yeah, we we do have a few of those extra conveniences compared to the old masters, I guess. Yeah. Um. So just you know, back to your practice, how would you describe your paintings? I mean, obviously you've spoken about um that you that you paint landscapes and that kind of yeah. thing, places, and obviously buildings and and homes and dairies and you know lots of other sort of things that you would see in the environment yeah how would you describe your painting techniques um i think so there's two things there's probably the the theme to my work and and the technique that i apply um i remember coming across a phrase a little while ago that described uh, somebody's writing and it talked about the geography of the heart and it just really stuck with me as a phrase of these landscapes that we attach so many memories and associations with and that tell a story of who we are and where we're from Um, and so those are the things that I love to explore Um, and even though all these places are usually, you know, it's a cafe that's owned by somebody and it's their cafe, if if you're someone that loves going to that cafe and it's part of your life and it's what you do with your partner on Thursday mornings or do a little, you know, and you sit it and that's that becomes your table at your cafe and this is how you like your coffee, um, People love having a representation of of that that part of their their life. Yeah, and I guess and, that kind of thing also the actual place. It's not only reminding them of the place, but you know what's been happening at the time that they were there, and yeah, you know and all those people, other emotional things. Yeah, yeah, and so I love um, taking on a landscape or a scene that I'm familiar with, and that I've got stories about. And where that's not possible, I really rely on um, 
other people's stories. You know, so with commissions, um, a well-written brief about why this place is so significant to to them, or what those stories are, really really helps me mm. make make the painting happen. In terms of how they actually look and and the technique, um, I like trying to capture an idealized take on that. You know, something that sort of maybe transcends time of day or season um and um when we think of these places in our mind's eye what it looks like you know that's almost the the scene that i'm trying to capture is how how you remember it and how you remember a place doesn't always have all the detail that's in there and sometimes the detail that's in there is amplified and certain things are dialed up or dialed back um but the getting into the headspace of that particular place, what it um, what it sounds like, what it smells like, um, yeah, mm. all, all those sort of experiences, sensory things of being there, standing on the footpath outside that restaurant, or mm. um, or sitting underneath a pine tree. And in summer, and you can smell and feel the pine needles, and you can hear the cicadas, and you can hear the sound of the waves crashing, and maybe a little bit of the tannoy from the surf club. You know, that all these things sort of really help get me in the zone for just making the painting visually. Mm, yeah. Alive. Yeah. And your painting, I mean, would you say it's it's kind of a flat use of colour or I mean, it's it's not really painterly, is it? How would you describe it? Well, I get asked this a bit, but I I've always just painted the same the same way, right? So it's how I see things in mm. my head, or how I remember things in my head. I mm. think it's definitely influenced by, um, particularly growing up. I think by comics and cartoons, certainly. Um, a diet of American cartoons, lots of sort of um, Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes, Disney stuff. And I always sort of just found myself really admiring the what was happening in the background in those plates. It wasn't mm. what, you know, Mickey and Pluto were doing in the foreground, but it's like, ah, oh, the blue colour that they've used on those hills or how they managed to get that, you know? And there was... Yeah. I think there was something about those background plates as well that were often and advertising art where it was it was very gestural. You know, obviously they had to do thousands of these plates, so they can't spend too much time. Mm. But there's something beautiful about um, the simplicity of of telling a story as simply as you possibly can mm. in a way that connects with people. And so that's what I've always admired in other people's work. Um how how they've simplified it down to the essence of what that place is so that it almost works in the same way that just as our phones could read a QR code, our eyes see a scene, it's like, bang, you're there. Mm. And, you, and, you're, and you're hearing those sounds and smelling those sounds straight away. You're already, you're there before you've even yeah. thought about it. Yeah, and it's definitely, I mean, they're obviously very realistic because you can absolutely tell where the place is. Um, but then it hasn't got that sort of photorealism, hyperrealism thing going on in the same ways. But it's definitely not abstract. So it's it's an interesting kind of blend, isn't it? 
yeah i i guess it is and it's um but it's also been influenced by um a bunch of different people you know i think mm, mm. um for as long as i can remember whether it was painting or doing anything you know just watching the way somebody does it that knows what they're doing and taking some tips from them you know whether that's mm. just even somebody mowing a lawn going oh all right i see how you did that oh yeah, yeah. Only, only empty the catcher that often. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but you know, you might just take something, something different from every lawn mowing person that you see <laughs> in life, and you build up your own. Yeah, style absolutely. And do you think that you are more sort of open to that kind of learning because you didn't do the fine arts degree? You, you know what? I think that um, my advertising background and design background, I think has been really good for me in that um, I don't know what, which came first, whether this supports my feeling about art or or the other way around. But um, I remember one of our first jobs in advertising and the way that advertising would work is that as a junior creative, you come up with a bunch of ideas and and show it to your creative director and they basically say, good or shit, and that's their job. And then they go back to lunch and you go back to work. <laughs> um, but I remember um, we had, there was a great boss, our first boss in Wellington, this guy Duster. And Jamie and I had come up with this idea, this uh, drink driving billboard, or it was, a, it was a poster at a bus stop that we thought was just brilliant, the best thing anyone had ever come up with. And we were trying to convince our creative director just how clever our idea was. And he just looked blankly at us and just kept talking, kept talking. And at the end of it, he said, I'll say, so can I get this right? You guys are going to sit at the bus stop and tell the story to everyone that comes past. I was like, oh, perhaps the piece does need to just work on its own. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that that's what I like about, I mean, art's, art's wonderful. It's so subjective. There's room for everyone and everything. But the pieces that I like are ones that work on their own, mm. that can do a job, make someone feel something without you going and telling them what they should be feeling right now or what the artist yeah. was feeling right now. And yeah. so I've always had a love-hate with title notes next to a work because I love seeing new work in galleries. I love seeing what people have produced and all the different directions they're going in. But I hate reading the explanation about the work because so often I read it and go, oh, that's not what I felt. Or, yeah, yeah. Mm, you're kind of directing did, the viewer. Did the artist, was the artist really exploring that or were they just going about making a painting? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the point where I, I love all art up to the point that I think that it just starts getting a little bit um, too arty. Yeah, I know. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. 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 And ultimately, I want, I I think that that within the spectrum of art, you've also got people that are doing things that have never been done before, exploring things that have never been done before. And that's great. But my success as an artist involves creating pieces that people are going to want to hang in their homes, that they're going to tell their story. And They've got to be kind of pretty and happy 
and mm. look good. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, I think that that's what I sort of know that that's where I, what side of the whole art world that I, mm. I sit on. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. the one that's based around trying to sell paintings and make a living out of it rather mm. than just being tortured and famous. Yeah. And intellectual. Yeah. 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 That's intellectual good. is good. Uh, yeah. You know, just up yeah. to the point. Nothing eh? wrong with intellectual, but yeah, that's yeah. a whole other podcast, that topic, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, so why landscapes for you, Josh? I mean, you're obviously recreating places that are important to you and that are part of your world, but also um, landscapes that are important to other people. And I've yeah. seen that you've done a few commissions of places outside of New Zealand and that kind of yeah. thing. So. I mean, you you have a, a a really big New Zealand flavor to your work, obviously. Um, what have you always been doing that kind of thing when you were painting on the side, or you know, how did you kind of end up making this kind of work? Do you think? I think, yeah, I have always painted landscapes. I've never been tempted to paint people, really, um, but I. Do you think I try and draw the personality out of a place um, so that they're less landscapes, more portraits of places? Yeah, that's right? nice. I like that. Um, I also think growing up, we moved around a lot. I think that we might have lived in maybe 20 houses growing up. And for me, um, thinking back and how you organise your memories, that's really easy for me to um, tag my memories and organise them via which house we were at and what the hallway looked like and where the bedrooms were and what the kitchen was like. And naturally, all the associations or things that I was thinking or doing at the time would fall into in, into a nice ordered um toolbox and i i have wondered whether that's that's affected what i what i do you know mm. certainly the sense of a sense of place is is incredibly important to me um i'm a real home bod and and i think that without somewhere to call home um i'd be quite lost um i also wonder whether that's something that is inherent in me that I was going to paint anyway. My great grandfather was a guy called Sholto Smith, who was quite a um, well-known Canadian architect here in New Zealand in the twenties uh, and thirties, and he was obviously fascinated by buildings and places, and um, and we've got sketchbooks of his at home, you know, which are all sort of dated 1905, 1909. How and amazing. they're little sketches of St. Helier's Beach or mm. Koei or, um, you know, little little um, little buildings that are still still there now. Wow. One of his favourite, one of my favourite buildings of his was the Albany War Memorial Library that I think... Um, must have been built just after the First World War. But it's about it's about the size of most people's kitchen. 
really? the whole building. You know, I don't think that they thought that there was going to be <laughs> much need for books in the future. <laughs> Maybe they were right. You know, it would make it, it's perfect yeah. for a library now where it's like, have you yeah. got a wireless connection? Cool. And a place exactly. to sit? Cool. Yeah. I can read anything. I don't think people go to libraries nearly as much as they used to. No. No. Yeah. Anyway, um, carry yes. on. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, he was all about houses. Um, mm, it's interesting, then, isn't it? It must have grand- been in the DNA. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I often wonder what role we play in and, yeah. you know, the, the decisions that we make and the things that we do aren't just based on us making that decision, whether that's mm. something that you're destined to do or through generations that's what your role is in, in life. Um, but I guess it's just how you how you tap on into yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And were you saying something about your grandfather? Well, my great-grandfather was the architect and then his son, my grandfather, had a demolition company called Smith Demolition and he had um, – he was a lover of houses as well, but he just loved tearing them down to make way for motorways. So he had the account for uh, like the Northwestern motorway before they'd built that. And oh, so wow. on one hand, it's like, oh, I would have sort of single-handedly taken out whole suburbs, you know, split yeah. Bond Street in half. <laughs> um, and then my parents were both real estate agents. And I think, I don't know, maybe there is a fascination or a, some sort of something where you just keep going back to the idea of home or mm. home as being important in one way or another. Yeah. And then you're also uh, representing home for other people as yeah. well. That That's quite a strong thread through your paintings. And that might not necessarily be their home or their house, but home for some people is, you know, that view of the beach or mm. the dairy or the place they take their dog. Um, right. You know, home, home isn't just, Four walls. Mm, and yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And um, I mean, how do you find doing those commissions when it's not your place or maybe it's not a place that you have any connection to? Is do you find that more difficult for your painting if it's quite a random view? It is. Um it can be. It's certainly they're certainly a lot easier if I have a personal connection with the place then they just paint themselves mm. but um if they don't i can just as easily you know if, if someone writes me a brief of what this place means to them and their family it is it's really easy to take that and run with it and also i think that in a sense it's easier because you're not doing it for yourself you're doing it for somebody else and it's and it's really easy to go, okay, this is what that person wants and yeah. it's after. Whereas sometimes it's if it's just your own work, where where could I mm. where could I go? You know, and you can sometimes be overwhelmed by the by the potential of where you could be going, but also knowing that if I paint this, it means that there's an opportunity cost of another thousand paintings that I'm not doing. Yeah. Um so so to have a really nice clear brief, much mm-hmm. like in advertising. Yeah, you know, good work in advertising doesn't just happen. It comes from a client saying, "This is our problem. This is what's important to us. This is what it needs to have." And we kind of like other ads that look like this. Yeah, you know, all those things yeah. are really uh, m- make make a creative's job a lot easier. Yeah, 
And there's a real synergy, isn't there, between that kind of brief and and the kind of brief that you'd get from your clients for a painting. Yeah, and, yeah, I know, think so. Quite, yeah, a good a good brief is is always at the start of it. And yeah. but I also think that um, knowing that the end product is going to have a home and it's going to be treasured and looked after um, is is a great feeling. I think ads by nature are very temporary. That's and right. um, they're gone. Sometimes people remember them, but usually they don't. Um, whereas this painting is going to be part of this family's life forevermore. Yeah, and through um, generations too. Yeah. I had a um, – I get commissioned to paint quite a few sort of lovely big villas, lovely big family homes. And um, I had one recently where I'd um, – gone to do the big reveal which is the exciting bit you know taking taking the canvas over and it's got a big blanket around it and people get to see it for the first time and um the daughters of this family i think had just been to tapapa or they'd been learning about uh taonga and what it means and this little girl was just so happy because daddy we've got our own piece of taonga Oh, and, gorgeous! And um, yeah, to to be giving families mm, like tre- treasures and yeah. heirlooms. Um, to mm. me, it's paint on canvas, and I do my best job of making it look as good as possible. But to the people that I'm giving it to, it's, it's mm. a lot more than that. Yeah, and it's about people and history and connection and legacy and. Yeah, all this really lovely stuff mm. that no one ever accused any of our chip ads of being. <laughs> but it's such a privilege, isn't it? And, you know, such an amazing thing to be a part of. Yeah, and I'm humbled every day when I'm mm. asked to paint things for people. Yeah, that's so nice. So just moving on, because we're breaking my podcast record of um, length of a podcast. <laughs> But it's all good because people can listen to it in two or three parts and it's totally worth it. Um, So can we just go on to talking a little bit about the commercial side of your your art practice? Um, First of all, it's very interesting to me that you don't have a website. Oh, yes. I tried um, (laughs) when when I went full-time, that was – I thought that was like number one thing to do was get my website sorted. And uh, and I went through the process of making one and then the sort of stops and starts and all the time being I had a Facebook page and an Instagram page that seemed to be doing all this really hard work for me that I kept thinking, yeah, I guess there are benefits for website, but what are they offering that mm. my Facebook page isn't? Yeah. And at that time, Facebook was still quite quite new, and I don't think anyone knew um, whether it had any legs to it. Um, but what my Facebook page had or Instagram page had was um, it, it had a dialogue, and it, it you know there was space for conversation. There was connections existing already with people who were into my art, who they you know they had friends that might be in. You, you know, it's doing stuff that mm. a website on its own wouldn't. You know, mm. website is a great destination. Uh, sorry, it's a great place to have stuff, but you kind of, um, I, I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't discount the hard work that social media pages can are doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I I think it's um it's probably due to what you've experienced in your life and your career, but you know, to have the balls to not actually <laughs> think I have to have a website because lots of people have websites and you know, just you're obviously just like, nah, it's not happening. I'm just gonna I mean as you say, as social media is working so well for you and you're making so many sales through it and so many connections that, you know, why would you? Yeah, I I think that it, that's really funny, that thing of I should have a website because everybody else does or, you know, that it's – and that sort of scenario is what you're confronted with every day is people is, is this what I should be doing because everyone yeah. else does? Yeah, yeah. Which is a recipe for being just like everyone else, mm. I guess. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'd love to have a website to send people, but I just, I know in my heart that if anyone that was actually interested and they googled Josh Lancaster, there'd be plenty of options for them to They'll find get in you. touch with me, see my work, but also read and explore discussions and associations mm. Mm. um which social media has the website may not yeah. be necessary and um you know you can buy pieces through facebook shop i suppose mm. Um, mm. but it is a nice sort of um you're kind of putting yourself into a conversation with josh lancaster in a way going into your instagram and, and facebook and um you know you can see all the past work which doesn't necessarily happen through a website, which is so much more static and, you know, yeah. there's not as much interaction from the artist, I suppose. But you're unlikely to stumble across a website. You know, a website's like, I wonder if Josh has a website, you know, <laughs> and then you'd find a website. But really, I think where um, social media has such power is it's just it gets in front of people mm. that, so that they're, when they're stumbling across things, they're really getting tripped up on purpose by what the algorithms think uh, are good. And yeah, um, yeah. and for me as an artist, it's a, it's such a great such a great tool. Um, it'd be so much harder without it. Um, but it also, yeah, it, there's sort of some tricky bits to it as well. It, it does require a lot of um, admin. I guess you will say, and I think it's great that people can, um, I can talk to people that are interested in my art and they can talk to the person that made it. Mm. Um, you know, I don't like the idea that um, you're inaccessible yeah. as an artist. You know, I kind of, mm. I'm, I'm, people, although they don't have a feature in the paintings, have a huge part to do with, with my pieces and, mm. um, and also, I think, requires you to have an awareness of what things are important to people. Mm. If you want to sell pictures of them, you know, yeah, the ugly, the ugly tree in the park that you might think is really nice. If no one's ever noticed that tree before, it's not necessarily going to make a good painting. Mm. Well, it probably would still if it was important to you, I imagine. Yeah. Do you yeah. think you do an ugly tree painting just to see? No, I don't think there's any <laughs> See how fast thing. it sells. <laughs> yeah, but you know what it's if if it was just a painting of an ugly tree i think it would be harder to sell but if you went and put a little title in the corner that said the ugly tree in the park 
suddenly there's a story there mm. and um, all my works have titles on them. And I think yes. as soon as that title goes on, it makes it about people. Yeah. Um, you know, nothing on this earth was born with a name in nature. It's just, it is what it is. Mm. We just came up with names and titles for things so that it makes it easier for us as people. Um, but that that title is is so important and it's often not the proper name for a place, but it's what we call it or what the family commissioning it call it. Um, and 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 again, it's about ownership of a place and yeah. um, it's its relationship to you and, and part of your story, I think. Mm, yeah, I was going to say that earlier, actually, that sort of the way that you title a work, which is often in the left-hand corner or sometimes the right-hand corner, isn't it? And you kind of, you have a white space over yeah. your painting behind and then sort of capital letters in yeah. black normally with the place name, which is um, it's very cool and it's, it's very sort of you. It's quite a sort of, um, you know, it's something that sort of identifies the painting as your work. And it's quite unusual, I'd say. And it's it's that sort of use of text is almost part of the overall painting in, in some ways. And it kind of reminds me of your fascination for branding and, you know, it almost yeah. takes you back to the advertising. So, yeah, yeah it's yeah. interesting. I think, um, I think that that little title caption device might have come from again you know reading comics as a kid and it was um buster and wizard and chips all those sort of english ones and everything was black and white you know so again it was how to tell a story in like a line but of course they had that little um inset caption device that often would be in the top left corner and say yeah. meanwhile at the takeaway bar totally, meanwhile at home that. Yeah, and you're like, here we are. Yeah, you're so right. Um, and I think that it is just a shortcut to telling people where we are. Yeah. Or explain to people who aren't in the know how important this place is to us. <laughs> that little that little line of um the ugly tree at the park, without that title, it's just a tree in the park. Mm. With that title, it's the story of some person having a really shitty day and something happening and that tree is to blame. And then it's got a whole lot more story. Yeah. To it than and it's, just... it's interesting though, isn't it? Because you don't like to tell people the story as such. Like you don't like the idea of the description and the label to go with the painting, but you are actually giving some clues. Yeah. Um, yeah. Without being so explicit, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just sort of a, yeah, there is a bit of a, this is what this thing is. You know, so there is an element of of being prescriptive with what the thing is that you're painting, but mm. just so brief in one or two words, yeah, you're not boring someone's head off with what this what the painting is about. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I have been asking people lately um, on the show how they sign their names, so I'm not sure if I've oh, yeah. seen is your is your signature on the front. Yep, my signature is is always in the opposite corner to where the title is. Um, so they can just they can just alternate. It doesn't sort of make a difference mm. to me. But uh, yeah, I always paint my last name Lancaster in capitals and one color. Um, I think for me, I don't know. That's like in art. If people just know you by your last name, maybe that's like 
means success. I don't it's know. Kind of, it's kind of cool. And it reminds okay. me of those. Um, I'm just looking at um, your studio or wherever you're sitting, your lounge. Oh, yes. Yes, uh, this is the lounge. Yeah. The lounge. Yeah. And you've got, um, you know, those really cool um, labels for, is it horse names? Yeah, that's exactly what they are. Can you, are they reflected? Uh, no, are I can mirrored? see them. I can see okay. them. Yeah. Yeah. The right so way. That was actually, they were a gift from Jamie who is my lifelong creative partner I was telling you about. Jamie is always really good at like having his finger on the pulse of what's what the coolest thing is or this little shop that only has some of these that are selling. And he went and bought these for me and explained that they were they were all horses' names and they'd been found in a shed out of Ellerslie, all covered in and so I had to wipe the they still smelled of horse poos. <laughs> and horses when I got them, clean all the grass off them. But yeah, they're all hand painted horse names. And again, much like the titles of the work, there's something quite curious and intriguing about a horse's mm. name. You know, the ones there Head Home, Sovereign's Crest, Count Cian, Jubilee Fair. Like Jubilee Fair just sounds so happy. And <laughs> but also Sugar's niece, which I think is spelt incorrectly and also Sherger's should probably have an apostrophe mm. between the R and S. But all those things are quite lovely because it means that it's come from a hand, from mm. a person that had other things on that they were thinking about when they should have been doing this. Yeah, thing. totally. And that's so sort of it really reminds me of your of your titles. Yeah. Do you think you actually got inspired by that or had you already started? I think I've probably already started, but there is something inspiring about or just something curious about a title that's two words. Mm, mm. Um, and I remember some. I remember somebody reading somewhere that the cat sat on the mat is a sentence. The cat sat on the dog's mat is a story. <laughs> and just what what you can allude to with just a, just one word. Yeah, especially in relation to a painting, you know. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, that that relationship between title and piece is is really important. Um, mm. It's not designed to be prescriptive. It's more about the relationship with the person who mm. the piece is special to. Yeah, and it is quite unusual, I think, for painters to put the title on in, in such a sort of not a dominant way, but in a way that you know. It, it's quite, it's there. I mean, it's not yep. sort of camouflaged within your painting. I'm not hiding it. <laughs> <laughs> it's right there for you. Yeah, and look, I think that that's, um, occasionally I've had feedback from people on that, but they want to go okay. and paint paintings without titles on them, they're free to go and do it. Exactly, and it's very much your style. I think it's very cool, actually, very modern and, and funky. You know, you're yep. bringing something else to your work in some ways with that. And and you do seem to like text, like with the dairies and that kind of thing. You you often uh, got the branding totally. going yeah, on. Yeah, well, I think that that's and dairies in themselves are just such a wonderland for memories growing up mm. of um of you know leaving leaving an obstacle course of rusty BMXs outside the front door, so the old ladies have to like clamber over them. <laughs> <laughs> Which even when you're getting told off or whacked with a walking stick or whatever, you still just don't care. Like that part of your brain hasn't developed where you care mm. that 
that much about other people. <laughs> but so that was one part of going to the dairy, but also just again, the smells going into a place and you can smell the newsprint, the magazines, the lollies, you could just everything. And it all makes up a really unique perfume that is unique to that dairy. You know, I remember um, we used to go to Pawanui a lot when I was really little and then for some reason didn't go back there for like 10 years or 15 years and went back and walked into the to the dairy or the superette and bang, just confronted with a smell that just within a nanosecond tears you from where you are back to yeah. some other time. And you didn't. Yeah. And you'd, you'd forgotten about that place until you smelt it again. Yeah, it's powerful, it, isn't it? Yeah, and it and it is just, um, you know, it's it's the chewing gum and it's the lollies and mm. it's just every everything. Totally, I can but, just yeah, I can remember that smell too. And so visually, it's kind of the same as well. You know, you've got all the same ingredients. Everyone's got a bit of Coke branding. Everyone's got the yellow and black and white herald sign outside and then there's sometimes some streets branding which is a bit scraped off because tip top came and took it over or you know and you know there was always a trade and exchange sticker on the front door and yeah and some some poster with some dates on it but everything was there and mm. regardless of what dairy you were at maybe the door was moved over or this poster was there but um all those ingredients sort of all play into the to the space yeah um, and into the memories as well yeah and yeah. you know memories of a time when going up to the dairy on your bike was the most important I know. part of the day <laughs> and that generation I mean well, that's what we used to do as kids and I remember that you know the butcher the local butcher and how they'd give you some lunch and sausage when oh, yeah. uh, your mum would buy the meat for the week kind of thing and the smell yeah. of the butcher shop and the fish shop and yeah it's, yeah it's crazy it, it's so different yeah. now, isn't it, really? It is. And I think that that's just as things get homogenized, that's um, those sort of smells. And the butcher, you know, the smell of the butcher was you'd go in and, and, and I still remember, I still love it now, even though I know what that smell is now and it's the smell of death. You know, it's still, it's like, hey, we're going to get some yummy meat. <laughs> this is the exciting bit. Ah. Yeah, but, you know, I don't like I to think about that part too much, no. <laughs> to be honest. Um, yeah. We, but I think that that I think that smell as part of the sensory experience is so mm. often overlooked, and um, I also think people who are sensitive or creative, or um, if they're sensitive to things, whether that's audio or or, or visuals, smells a big part of that. As, as well you know that yeah. you're just open to influence or sensory experiences mm, yeah um and ever since i was a kid i can again uh, with people's houses some houses you go in and you're like mm, i love the smell of your mum's house and your mum's cooking and what is this potpourri oh, <laughs> your mum knows how to make this house smell nice <laughs> and other houses i'd be like knowing that that's like oh what does that smell? And then years later, you find that that's what the smell of boiled mint smells like, or what? Do you know what I mean? Like, it yeah, just and that would make places either as a kid, I'd be drawn to them and not want to leave, or I just I would want to get out of there mm. as soon as as soon as possible. Yeah, it's I didn't really understand sense. it, but 
Yeah. yeah but all these things are all sort of linked into memory. And then mm. I guess the easiest way we, to represent smell or audio sometimes is with a picture. You know, mm. that mm. yeah. smell's not something that we can really wrap up too easily. And No, but it definitely, yeah. I mean, your work definitely takes people to a place or a time. And with that comes all those other senses, I suppose. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so we're going to have to get on to our last questions because it's yes. it's practically two hours. So um, yes, yeah, <laughs> it's been such an interesting chat, though. It's, it's, I really don't want to um, cut it short, but I guess I better. So it will be really inter- interesting, Josh, to know who your favorite artist is of all time, if you can choose one, or yep. a few artists, and how have they influenced your work? Um, so I've got there's a bunch of New Zealand artists that that have always appealed to me um Rita Angus um Dick Brazell Colin Wheeler Don Binney um Carl Morn these are all people which you know I think that I just love the craft that they apply in simplifying these familiar places down to something we Mm. can we can all get um Dick Frizzell was someone that I think is probably um, throughout my entire life. He's been there talking to me with his either his artwork or before before he was a painter, he worked in advertising. And I think for me, um, he's been a great um, person to sort of hold up and really interrogate the journey that he's been on because it's not too similar to my path in terms of geography and advertising and then and then going on to paint um so he's always been my all-time new zealand favorite and i remember um my first ever exhibition at Smythe gallery in auckland um sending him a sending him a message asking him to come along and check it out it's like part of my kind of cold calling Mm, and um and I didn't hear back from him and then he turned up at the exhibition and 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 uh, I was really humbled by that and Mm. and doubly humbled that he that he stayed and had a good look at the work and we had a little bit of a chat about Mm, it that's great um, yeah so those those are people who I New Zealand artists are really into but my all-time favourite artist is a guy called Lauren Harris, who is a Canadian painter, or was a Canadian painter, and was part of an outfit called The Group of Seven. And I'd never heard of Lauren Harris until um, my cousin Joel, who's Canadian, said, oh, you should check out this guy's work. Uh, it's kind of kind of looks like yours and so i was like it doesn't look like mine and googled him and i just remember just google google images lauren harris and just scrolling up and every single painting just stopped me and was like oh oh my god this is amazing how did you do this and for something to look so um relevant today even though it's painted hundred and something years ago um 
yeah, that I don't know why, but that's his work is always just connects mm. connects to me on a uh, yeah really deep level. Mm. Well, we'll put a link to his um to his name, and hopefully there's some some um place that the link can take us to with his work. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, and um, it would be interesting. I can't wait to have a look. Um, and as an artist, what would you say is your biggest challenge? Time. Times um, there's not enough of it and it's not in the right places when you need it. But, yeah, that's that's the trickiest one. That and um, maintaining healthy relationships with friends and loved ones while being an artist, you know, because mm. it's just such a selfish pursuit. It's just you. Mm. If it's going to happen, it's up to you. And if it's if it's going to be, um, yeah, yeah, it's just you. You have to. You're the one that has to say, right, let's work tonight. Mm. Night, don't going to have a drink or no? You've really got to do this. Come on. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, is, it does require lots of solo time. I've never been, um, you know, that Bob Ross character who can seem to just happily paint and talk at the same time. <laughs> like, you're not even looking what you're doing. <laughs> He's crazy, that guy. Oh my god. Oh yeah, but yeah. he also um, and and I, I I love watching his his videos. Not not from like a technical aspect, but I watch them and just think, how can you be so calm and personable and be furiously pursuing your creative yeah. ambition? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the things I struggle with are finding the time and creating a routine. You know, routines for me uh, are great. When I, have, um, when I have my kids, I'm entirely parental and I don't – yeah, they they never see me paint because it just doesn't happen when really? when when, uh, when they're here. Do you paint but, when they go to bed? Yeah, I do. If if um usually when I've got the boys, they by the time they've gone to bed about nine, and I've made some lunches and got some school uniforms organised and had a tidy up, and then it's like, and I'll just get into some painting, but it's you know it's almost yeah. midnight, and for me. Um, I'm not that enthused about just having an hour to paint. For me, magic painting time is I wake up in the morning without my alarm. It's just me here and I've got nothing in the diary. And so I can just go feral. Yeah. And um, a successful day's painting, I'm still there in my pyjama pants and T-shirt at 10 o'clock at night. There's half a dozen coffee cups in the sink and everything is dirty and smelly and disgusting but it's been highly productive mm, but, so good but you but know yeah. it's, it's it's sort of like one of those things where yeah um you just have to go no today we're painting and no matter what happens you, you just don't get distracted yeah and it is easy to get distracted you know i find myself um doing things like the other day we've got quite a lot of work on at the moment so should be in the studio painting but i find myself doing weird things like um i've made up some sugar soap and i was starting to clean the skirting boards 
<laughs> like somehow having a clean top of your skirting boards has leapfrogged <laughs> all these paintings that you've got to do. And, <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, I did it again. I distracted myself. I should really put yeah. the sugar soap away and go back up to the studio. Or I'll find myself pulling weeds out of the garden. Mm. But, but, you know, maybe it is that sometimes you, you need, do just need to need the space. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, well, you just need yeah. to do some sugar soaping. Yeah. Make the paintings better. <laughs> exactly. Find my own light and shade. <laughs> oh, that's so deep. <laughs> yeah. And last question. I think we've kind of talked about why you make the kind of work you make, but um, what would you say to your younger artistic self? Um, if I was talking to me 20 years ago, I maybe like buy heaps of Bitcoin or something. That would have been good advice. <laughs> but then I would have needed to go into the future and tell myself when to sell it. Yeah, exactly. Was it a thing 20 years ago, Bitcoin? I think if you got in there as soon as it started, mm. yeah, then, yeah, I think taking anything to get um, financial stress or work stress is is um, the enemy of creativity, I think. So certainly when I moved to the Hawke's Bay and um, we sold our house in Auckland, you know, those 20 years in advertising were great because it meant that I didn't have to have such an intimate relationship with the bank that I do now, all of which is is great for painting pictures, you know. If there was, um, I think I'd find it stifling having a figure, a looming figure in my um, head each month that I needed to hit, um, you know, to, to give the bank their money or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I still have yeah, dreams of um, complete financial freedom because I think what that would equate to for me is complete creative freedom. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think. Totally. Yeah. Um, so, in with serious advice to a younger self, I think um, the things that I'd probably say would be, I mean, I think I've got to where I wanted to get to. I think that it would have been nicer if I was able to do it more gracefully um, in parts, if, if I could have perhaps been a little bit gentler and more patient with myself and the people that I care about you know in that in that journey um and i also i um i i don't want to sort of go back and interfere too much with stuff because you don't want to go back and go oh hey don't worry about anything because you know what i don't know if i would have turned into a full-time painter if my approach was don't worry about anything yeah you know there's there's a funny dance between not worrying and really worrying about something, you know, mm. to get it done. Um, yeah. And just, yeah, that's, I guess that's just a predicament that everyone has is mm. what to give a shit about and what not to. Yeah. And I think if you can figure that out, the world's would be a much simpler. Yeah, place. totally. And it's often only in hindsight that you kind of get that, you know? Yeah. You, you sort of get that perspective on your sort of earlier life. When you think, you know, you have the advantage of of hindsight. 
yeah and it's I think different I think I think another thing is that I'd probably have really encouraged my younger painter self the one that was still working in advertising to have backed myself earlier mm. you know I think I left it till when it was inevitable um that it was going to go into painting but if I'd done it earlier I think it might have been easier on everyone including including myself um but I remember when I first started painting only Jamie really knew that I was painting and um he did something really lovely for me and for my birthday he'd organized he got in touch with Don Binney and he'd organized for me to have a visit to Don Binney's studio and to take some work in and show him and Don Binney would give me some feedback and it's wow. just like amazing yeah and such a thoughtful present but I didn't think that my paintings were good enough so I was like oh better better go and start working on those paintings to show Don Binney and then you know a month later two months later six months later uh, I still hadn't got the pieces together. It just wasn't, you know, such a such a big opportunity going to see Don Binney with my paintings. I better make them look really good. And Don Binney died. And oh, no. I never got to go and uh, see him. And I felt really guilty that um, I'd been given this huge opportunity and I'd failed to launch. Mm. And that was but weirdly motivating in that it's like, Right, that was an opportunity, and you and you you stuffed that up because you didn't back yourself. There's nothing wrong with your work, so just sort of little experiences like mm. that. You just make, yeah, and you you realise when to when to front and show up, even if yeah. you yeah, even if you're not a hundred percent on it. You yeah. just got to you got to show totally. up, and you just got to keep things moving, and you can't pull the emergency stop. On yeah, life. Yeah, and that I mean. That was it would have been a huge sort of um learning experience for you, I guess, and, and a huge sort of um I don't know, just it would have been an interesting insight for you, I suppose. And and hopefully you sort of did a little bit of a shift after that experience. Yeah, I I think um yeah, I think I think it did just encourage me to just show up and just mm. put myself out there. And um, and to sort of put a, try and give those you know feelings of self doubt or um, not not worthiness, imposter you know? syndrome. Yeah, totally imposter syndrome. Just just give them give them a break because somebody's got to be an artist, and yeah. you're not hurting anyone by painting these pictures. If people don't like them, then that's fine. Um, and Maybe the people that don't like them uh, haven't bothered telling me. <laughs> but, you know, I found it just overwhelming, incredible levels of support from yeah. both friends and family and strangers. Mm. And it's a bit like, I think, that truth of, you know, when you have to get up at a wedding and make a speech and you're really nervous about it. And you think, oh, no one's going to find this funny or no one's going to think that this is very smart or shall I say this? Or, But you've got 
a captive audience that actually really want you to do well mm. and and there's love and support in that in that room for at speech time and I think that that's the thing that you got to that for me is quite reassuring is you know I'm I'm supported by by the people that that matter mm. um, and yeah and the things that you're often scared of just don't exist yeah that's right no I think uh, you definitely have a very loyal following and, and a lot of people love your work and I do too and I do think that Don Benny would have loved your work and would have been proud Oh, let's let's hope so. I loved his work, and mm. he was certainly incredibly inspiring to me. Yeah, so, um, I, yeah, I can see that, and yeah. yeah, he was amazing. Oh well, Josh, I think I might put this podcast into two parts. That would be really exciting. So people have to wait for the second half. Yeah, it's been the best chat. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and you know, you've you've got so many um, powerful things to say that we can all learn from. I think. And uh, you're doing incredibly well with your art practice. And, uh, yeah, it's an honour to meet you. And I uh, really enjoyed my two-hour session. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mandy. And it was lovely to meet you. And I love what you're doing with Creative Matters and um, and giving a voice to New Zealand artists. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's a lovely thing to be doing. So thank you for inviting me to be part of it. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.